mentioned we're doing our series called Created to Create, where we're thinking about the fact that God calls us to, to create something of the world. In fact, as Genesis 1 uh, begins, it tells us that um, God creates humanity, and three different times that word create is used in that verse. And we've talked about how that was a way in ancient times, if you were writing on papyrus, which was extremely hard to do, and you would make it uh, a huge discipline to be able to do that. You wouldn't just waste words. You wouldn't just say over and over and over again a theme, but it was a way of, of saying like, this is important. Pay attention to this. This is before a uh, bold face or italics. And it was a way to say like, pay attention to this and listen, this is what you should think about. So Genesis 1 tells us that we are created and then we are supposed to create something of the world. And I think it becomes increasingly difficult, especially in our world today, because we're just tempted to consume, consume, consume. Andy Crouch says in his book, uh, The TechWise Family, that the world has just become easy everywhere, that it's just easy for us to just check out and be passive, not really consider that we are called to create something of this life. As we celebrated with Danny and Susan being married for 50 years. Is, that's, a, that's an accomplishment, isn't it? And we cheer and we say, that's awesome. But it's hard. And you do have to spend some time with each other every once in a while. So it's hard to get through that kind of life. It's hard. It's hard to create something that's lasting, that's meaningful. Especially when it comes to this world and trying to figure out how to navigate what this looks like in 2017, I think is difficult if we're honest. And I hope that over these last few weeks, as we've talked and considered a lot about technology and how technology is shaping our life, that you've maybe said, all right, Brian, you've talked about this enough. Like, I'll maybe, you know, turn my phone off at eight or disconnect for a few hours on the weekend. You know, Brian, you've made me feel guilty enough and I probably should. And there's a lot of research that's backing you up. It's not just Brian talking. I probably should, you know, just disconnect, find some time to put some space in my life so I'm not just connected to everything all the time. Maybe you've thought that, and maybe some of you even tried it. Maybe you've taken a step and you're like, all right, no, I'm going to do it. And you've tried it out, and it's probably been hard if you're honest. You know, if you're connected all the time to spend some time disconnecting, it's difficult. And eventually, I think, if you practice this in your life, you're going to hunger for it. But at the beginning of it, it's difficult. And you have these feelings of, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm bored, or it's weird not just being connected to all people all the time. How am I supposed to actually use this time? And I hope you've practiced some of that, and maybe you've started to ask those questions. But what does it look like to live into your calling? What does it look like for you to be the person, perhaps, that God has called you to be? And to begin that discussion, I want to start in an area that we're all uh, pretty familiar with, and that's hero culture. Because heroes are everywhere, right? It seems like every other week there's some hero movie that's coming out, and you're like, hasn't this already been made? I and mean, you're not really sure. There's um, Spider-Man movies over and over and over again. I don't know how many times we need to see Uncle Ben die, but it's just sad. And same with Batman's parents. Like, how, how is this going to go down again? Like, all right, this is horrible. Why do I have to go through this in so many different iterations? There's not just Batman and Superman movies. There's Superman versus Batman. And this summer, Wonder Woman came out, which I heard was fantastic. I'm not anti-Wonder Woman. I just don't really go see the movies that often. But I heard it was a, a great movie. And it just seems like every other week there's some superhero group that we're supposed to go see. And apparently they keep making money because people continue to go see them. Why is that? Why is it that 
there's this hero culture, especially in today's day and time, that, that we seem to always want to go watch movies about them. And a deeper question I think that I want to ask today is, what does it mean to be a hero? And what does it look like to live a heroic life? I imagine most of us, we would want to do something significant in our lives, but at the same time, we wouldn't take on that word too comfortably. In fact, people who I would argue are definitely heroes say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a hero. An example of that, um, a very unfortunate incident happened, a terrorist attack on May 22nd, 2017 at an Ariana Grande concert um, in Manchester, England, uh, where a suicide bomber killed uh, 22 people and 37 more were injured. And this is a heartbreaking story, uh, very sad. But as that explosion went off, there was a man named Chris Parker who, as the bomb was going off, as chaos was happening around that scene, he actually went in to that area, went into the arena. He was outside to try and help who he could. He first tried to help a woman who, unfortunately, her life was lost. And then he was able to find this teenage girl who her, her legs um, had been blown off and injured um, during this, and he helped to, to take her out, and he saved the life of this young girl. So when the Manchester Evening Gazette chatted with Chris Parker, they said, how does it feel to be a hero? I mean, you saved someone's life. You ran into the problem instead of staying away from it. And he said this, I'm supposed to be a hero, but I'm not a hero. I'm just a normal guy, just a normal, regular guy who ran into the arena that night because I heard kids screaming. This is what happens whenever someone is interviewed on the news, right? And they have a mic in front of them and say, hey, whoa, that was really amazing what you did. You literally saved someone's life. And everybody just goes, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm no hero. I just did what everybody would have done. I heard what I thought was an issue, and I went in to help. And what does it mean to be a hero? And in those moments, hopefully we never have to face one of those where we have to do the hard thing and maybe enter into a really difficult situation. The fact is, even in those moments, you know, when sometimes we would say that, you know, I'm, I'm not a hero and we don't want to put the emphasis on ourselves, the reality is we have to be very careful about this. Because if we're honest, we would know that we do often make ourselves the hero. There's a book that I would highly recommend called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me by Carol Travis, and it talks about all these instances in especially recent um, human history where uh, people will like admit mistakes but just not really admit that it was their fault. And we see this in the news all the time. They'll go, oh, sorry, you know, sorry if I um, offended anybody and it's not really my fault, but if you got offended, I'm, I'm sorry to you. People don't like to take the blame on themselves. And we see this in like the world all the time, but it's really hard for us to see it in ourselves. There's a chapter in this book called Memory, the Ultimate Self-Justifier, which is pretty hard because you think your memories are right, but there's actually a bunch of research that shows that actually our memories are working on self-justifying and turning the narrative of the story so you actually look like the hero, or at least that you're justified in the actions that you took. That's just the way our memory works. In fact, there's a, um, a guy named Peter Haber, who the book tells a story about, who is a psychologist and Haber was in graduate, or was going to go to graduate school, and he had been at undergrad at the University of Michigan, which was about 30 minutes from his childhood home. 
and he decided to, to take this scholarship that he had gotten to come to Stanford, and it was this big step, and he came all the way to the West Coast, and so for his entire life, he told this story about how his mom said, no, you really should stay close to home. We really want you to be close to here. We want you to be able to, like, help us eventually stay close to home, be close to Michigan, and so he just told this story for years. That was what he believed. That's what he told. Is like, you know, I defied my family, and I came to the West. I'd never really been here before, and I, I pulled it off. And it wasn't until later in his life that he experienced this story that he had been telling for years and years and years was false. Here's an excerpt from that book. When Haber went back to Michigan for his mother's 80th birthday, she handed him a shoebox of letters they had written to each other over the years. In the letters he pulled out, he learned that he had decided on his own to reject his scholarship to Stanford and stay at Michigan. In the letters my mom showed me, she was the one who told me I needed to go west to Stanford. She pleaded passionately with me to try something new. I must have been the one who rewrote this entire history so my memory came out consistent. I love this part. Haber's professional specialty is autobiographical memory. This is a pro in this area. And for his entire life... He believed this story and had a bit of an existential crisis because this thing that he had believed all this time, that it was him who defied the odds and made this crazy move, actually as he is exposed to these letters and faces reality, he realizes he's not as heroic as he might have thought. In fact, it was his mom who said, no, 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 you should try and go and start this new life. So what does it mean to be a hero. When in the public, if someone was to put a microphone in front of us and say, wow, what you did was really heroic, we would say in that moment, no, 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 I'm not. But if we're honest, our memory is telling us we are. What does it look like to live out the calling that God has given us when sometimes it's hard for us to understand that? And the fact is, I believe we all have a calling from God in the world. And it might be a big thing that God has called to do or a little thing, but one of the things that Scripture tells us also is that we are made in the image of God. So if we bear God's image, not only do do we function in some way like God's character in the world, but we also are instructed to show people that they have God's image too. That we're supposed to look at people differently. And I believe to to be a hero, to be somebody who who lives out this kind of life is to recognize that you have the image of the creator inside you. And you have the opportunity to show others that they do as well. But I think that comes with us being honest about what's really going on in our lives and our story and taking steps to do what God has called us to do. This doesn't always look like some huge thing. It doesn't look like, you know, planting a church somewhere or, or doing whatever it is that you feel like is this huge calling from God. In fact, Thessalonians says this this way. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more, to do so more and more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Doesn't that sound like the opposite of the Christian life? You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that daily li- your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. And this is somebody, Paul, who like, takes unbelievable steps in faith, who lives an off-the-rails Christian life, but Paul, I think, is saying, not everybody can do what I'm called to do. 
I have this calling, perhaps, to spread the gospel all over this, this region and live just like a cr- crazy vagabond and do whatever it takes to spread this gospel. But if everybody did that, no one would be in Thessalonica. If everybody just followed me on this missionary journey, the churches that I'm leaving behind would disband and break up. I need some of you, in fact, most of you, to lead a quiet life. Ambition and quiet life is like such a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? Make it your goal to live a life in such a way that you're living out your calling in your daily existence, the things that you're called to do. In your daily life, lean into the call of God. And that might just change the world. As we think through this, it helps me to think of a, a story that we're likely all familiar with, Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses sees this bush and um, it's just not burning up. So Moses thinks, I'll just go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up. And at this point in Moses' life, he is on the outside of town. He had grown up um, around Egypt, but he saw uh, an Egyptian who was um, lording his power uh, over an Israelite, so he got mad and killed him. And then the word starts to spread, and Moses needs to lay low for a while. So he goes out, and his life is at this point pretty comfortable. Um, He's tending the flocks of his father-in-law. Things are seemingly pretty good, and this bush that's out there in the distance that he sees just doesn't seem to burn out. The bush is is lit, as the kids might say today. So the bush is just is there, and it's just not going out. And God communicates this this powerful message to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, he says this. He says, um, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. This says something so significant about God. That even if you currently are in a state when you're suffering, when you're going through a hard season, when things just are out of control, they don't seem to be good, God cares about that suffering right where you are. And that might not mean that God is going to act immediately, but that God is going to use people if you allow God to, to work on that. So God cares about people who are suffering. And this is great news, but it's not necessarily great news to Moses. Because his life is pretty comfortable. His life is pretty easy at this point. He's gotten into the rhythm that he likes. And because God is like this, it means Moses has to go. He has to leave the comfortable life that he knows now and go to the most powerful man in that world and say, let the people of God go. And so Moses thinks, not me. and Not me in this tunic. There's no way. I'm not going to go do this. And so Moses then lists off these five excuses. And I would argue that all of us at some level, when we feel God's call on our life, that's probably going to be our response. Like, there's no way. I I can't possibly do that. So Moses goes through all of them. Here's the, the first one. His first excuse is, who am I? Which is exactly what we feel. When we feel called to do something, when we think that maybe we want to do this thing and and be part of something um, that we want to work on, this isn't an identity crisis for Moses. He's not asking it that way. He's saying, how am I possibly going to do anything about this? And you're basically asking me to Luke Skywalker the Death Star at this point. I mean, you just, you don't 
You don't do this. The odds of this are, are so unbelievable. There's, there's just no way. You're, who am I? I'm just this, this insignificant guy with actually a, a checkered history. There's a murder in my past, God. I don't know if you know about that one. Uh, oh, you do. Okay, well, you do. But um, like, who am I to do that? There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And this is, I think, that first moment when we feel maybe that we're called to do something, when we're called to create something, and we just run into some difficulty because right when we feel called to something, we're going to think about all the reasons why we can't do it, right? We're going to think of all the reasons why, oh, there's just no way. And here's the list of reasons why I shouldn't be the one to do this. Just from a broad perspective, Moses' first question is, who am I to do this? Secondly, Moses says very practically, well, who are you, basically? And who is the one? Like, if the Israelites ask me, who is it that has sent me, like, who, who is it? And God communicates one of the most profound things in Scripture, one of my most favorite verses. God says, I am, which is amazing because God is communicating not just I'm some pronoun or something that is off in the distance. God is a verb, which is so significant for us still today. God is with us. I mean, fundamentally, God is with us as we live. God is in our midst. God knows what we're going through. God knows who we are. So God paints this word picture and says, when people ask, say, I am. Moses has a third excuse. He's coming up with everything. What if they don't believe me? This seems pretty crazy. Like, I don't think this is ever going to happen. Here are the logistics of why this can't happen. Here are like all the reasons why this is a terrible, terrible idea. What if they don't believe me? And at this moment, God says, throw your staff on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And then Moses has to go grab the snake, which is probably the hardest part for me to understand because I don't really want to be around snakes that much. God is reminding Moses in that moment, it's not about your power here. If you rely on your power, sure, that's never going to work. It's not going to happen. But if you instead will tap into me, and Moses is saying, I, I don't really think I can pull this off. God says, you can through me. And the fourth excuse Moses has is, I'm not eloquent. I don't speak good. I failed speech class in high school. Remember that? I wasn't that good. And I always find it significant that the one who says I'm not a good public speaker um, speaks the Ten Commandments to the people eventually. Some of the words that have shaped the world perhaps more than any other are spoken by somebody who says I can't speak very well. So Moses begins kind of on the, the, the big, huge things. Well, who am I to do this? There's no way. Now it's like, well, here is like a specific thing that I really stink at. And it's like, I'm going to need to talk and I, I'm not really going to be able to pull this off. So there's this specific thing. Let me just tell you, this is one thing that there's no way I can do it. And the thing that I think we need to, to realize is God basically says, who made humans deaf or mute? I'm the one who, who put the volume in you, okay? Like I can figure this out. I'm not surprised by your weaknesses, God doesn't say, you know what, you're right. You know, now that we've had this long conversation, you're, I'm going to go to somebody else. You know, you're right. Oh, I forgot about that public speaking fiasco you had in middle school. Like, oh, that you're right. Let's, let's go on. Let's move uh, to somebody else. And then finally, 
Moses like, gives, it's kind of an excuse, just send someone else to do it. And at this point, Moses, or God says God's anger burns against Moses because it's not about this, man. Just figure this out. You're going to be able to do it. All I need, basically, is a body. I just need you to show up. I need you to be my representative. I care about human suffering. I care about slavery. I care about the fact that the Israelite people are in bondage. I care about that, so go. And I need you, Moses, to be my mouthpiece. And what does it mean to be a hero? I think it means to be available, to show the world what God is like. And when you think about the thing that God might be calling you to do in the world, it's going to take some work. But if God has put a dream on your heart, don't let the questions that you have about that dream stop you from pursuing that dream. Because I would argue all of those things that Moses brings up, those are legitimately good questions. I mean, those are some things even like very practically, you know, what is your name? That's pretty good, right? Like, it would probably be good if I had a name to be able to share with people who, there's some good questions that Moses has. But don't let those questions or those fears or those insecurities stop you from doing what you're called to do. Continue to pursue that. Pursue God's heart for your life. Come before God honestly and say, you know, is this really what you're calling me to? And even as I have these questions and these doubts and I feel insufficient, I feel like this isn't going to work all that well, God, I'm going to pursue your heart in this anyway. And what does it mean to create something in the world that's unique and significant on your own? I think sometimes it comes from silencing our doubts and allowing our belief and trust to be in our God. To allow the dream that God has put on your heart, to allow that voice to be louder than all the other voices that say this is a dumb idea or you're too stupid to pull this off. You don't have enough to figure this out. We need to hear the voice of God stronger than that. I love how Stephen King talks about creating. He says this, what, makes you, what you know makes you unique in some way. Be brave. And remember that plumbers in space is not just a bad setup for a story. And if we're honest, that sounds like a terrible setup for a story, right? Who would ever read a book about plumbers in space? Like that just sounds like one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard, and maybe that's because I'm not called to write it, if there is such a book that will ever uh, be written. But you want to know why I know that Plumbers in Space isn't such a bad setup for a story? It's because there's currently uh, a, a musical at the Pantages right now called Hamilton, which you may or may not have ever heard of. If you haven't, you've probably been living under a rock for a while. But Hamilton um, is a, a musical written by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who uh, is a very talented individual. He also um, wrote In the Heights, which is an amazing um, play as well. And uh, Miranda uh, decided that he was going to write this about um, the life of Alexander Hamilton uh, and use rap as like a, a big part of the show. It's not all rap, but there's a lot of, of rap and spoken word and slam poetry uh, throughout the show, which just seems like one of the worst ideas ever, if I was just pitching it to you, right? If I would say, you know what, I'm going to do um, a show about our founding fathers using rap. That just sounds like a terrible idea. It's up there with plumbers in space, isn't it? Like, what, what, like what on earth, how is that ever 
uh, going to work, that doesn't make much sense. And in fact, uh, the first time that some of this music was performed was in the White House. Barack Obama uh, invited uh, Miranda to come, and he wanted him to perform some stuff from In the Heights. And uh, Miranda said, well, you know, along with the theme of the night, I think it would be better if I brought this song that I'm working on um, that has some rap regarding Alexander Hamilton. And Barack Obama said, are you sure? That doesn't really sound like that great of an idea. And then when he saw it, he was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Because Lin-Manuel Miranda, he was inspired by reading this biography of Alexander Hamilton, which is 800 pages long. He was on vacation and just doing some light reading, I guess, and wanted to read this. Uh, and it's interesting that he was reading it and uh, found this inspiration. I looked at some of the other reviews of this. If you want to click, you probably can't read that, but um, very weird. The first one star says, great book, and I don't understand why it only has one star. But then the next one said, I love to read. I'm a huge history buff and gave it one star. Um, this was extremely boring. The way in which it was written, it was hard to keep my attention. So... And for some people, this wasn't this like amazing moment where then you're inspired to, to write this. But Miranda explained that as he was reading about um, the life of Alexander Hamilton and all the drama that was going on around this time, he said, this feels like Biggie and Tupac, which seems like a weird one-to-one parallel. Like, that just, like, I don't understand how in your mind you go from like Alexander Hamilton to Biggie and Tupac. That doesn't make much sense. But it's plumbers in space, right? He was on vacation, reading this 800-page book, and he felt called to create something. And it wasn't easy. In fact, he said the first two songs took two years for him to write, so it didn't come very quickly. But after he performed this at the White House, there's something like two million views of that performance on YouTube, and he realized that he had something. What does it look like for you to listen to the dream that God has put on your heart? Because honestly, when you first think about it, maybe it's something that's just just very practical, like you you really want to be a good dad or you want to be a better friend, you want to be a better coworker. And it's hard because then Monday comes and you're tired. It's hard to stay disciplined in what God has called you to. But what would it look like for you to listen to the dream that God has put on your heart more than all the excuses that are going to come up? What would it look like for you to listen to the dream that God has put on your heart instead of all the questions that come up? Because you have history now. You you can't necessarily just walk into this with a clean slate. What does it look like for you to listen to that dream on your heart more powerfully than the other things you might be wondering What would it look like for you to just come honestly before God and seek what God's calling you to do? I think the first thing as we think through this, again, is hopefully you've maybe been convinced over the last few sermons to spend more time disconnected. The first answer that I would say to open your heart to what God has, has called you to is so boring prayer. And it sounds like, oh, that's just an old thing, and Brian's just going to tell us, well, you should pray more, and you should. But I believe that, that prayer, coming truly before God, 
helps open us to the thing that God has called you to. If you want to create something significant, if you want to do something important with your life that is related to God's work in the world, then the first question I would ask you is, how much time are you spending in prayer? Do you ever just silence everything else that's in your life and seek God? I would like you to ask somebody that's, that's close to you in your life, and maybe it's a spouse or just a friend of yours. Just ask, how much time do you spend in prayer a week? And it's okay if it's zero right now. That's totally fine. If you're not spending any time in prayer, I don't want you to feel guilty. But I want you to feel called to something greater. If you want to pursue God's word for your life, you've got to spend some time pursuing God. There is an article that Tony Ramos, a member of our church, gave me uh, last week, and it was on NBC News. It's not like a spiritual website. It was an NBC News uh, website, and uh, it, it said, it was titled, um, that, that prayer changes us, basically. And it's all of these studies that have been done. There's actually um, information, new research is out that prayer releases endorphins for you to feel good, for you to face things that are going on in your life. And prayer actually makes really positive differences for you. I mean, I wish, like, Jesus would have told us that or something, but I, I mean, I guess whatever. I, we often, when, it thinks, when we think about, like, what's the first step towards creating something, or I want to make a difference, I want to make X better in my life, I want to do this in a different way, we just want to rush right to the action. But I think the first step often is contemplation. Taking time to sit before the mystery of God. To really just honestly ask the question, God, who are you calling me to be? We wouldn't necessarily readily admit that we're heroes, even though our memory is going to self-justify us a little bit. So we desperately need to sit before our Creator and say, God, who are you calling me to be in the world? The article mentions this. It says, one of the purposes of prayer and meditation is to regain our footing so that we can step out into the world and take positive action. We reconnect, recenter, recharge, and gain the strength necessary to take steps that will create real change. In other words, prayer is the fuel that lights the fire of action. We want to jump to the action and not pray. And I know that this is, this is true of people that I, I've seen. I think that uh, people, especially in my generation, were really good about starting ministries and getting things off the ground, but don't really have the, the prayer life and the sustained discipline to, to, to sustain those things. Because working in the world, creating a difference is actually hard. You run up against things. It's difficult, and prayer needs to be the fuel for all of us. And so the question that I ask as we transition to think about, okay, what might God be calling me to in the world is just simply, how much are you praying? And it isn't to make you feel guilty or to feel bad, but I deeply believe that times of prayer, centering our thoughts on God, can change us from the inside out so that we might do God's things in the world. So that we can participate in the things that God has called us to. 
and so that we can dream about those things. Because if you're just going through life on your own, you're going to have a list of questions and a list, list of reasons why you shouldn't do this or why you shouldn't do that or why you're not this enough or why you're not that enough, why you can't really do that because of whatever reason it is. And those questions, those fears, those anxieties will stop you from the actions that you're supposed to take in the world. So what is it that you're called to create? I hope that as you begin to wrestle with that, you begin in prayer. Because prayer is the fuel that continues to light us, to do the thing that God has called us to do in the world. Let's pray as we close, because we probably should. God, as we sit before you right now, we admit that we struggle with prayer. We're distracted. Our hearts can't sit still for more than 30 seconds sometimes. May we seek you in the stillness. May we come before you with our honest hearts. May we lean into who you're calling us to be. Not because prayer is an easy fix, because it's when we come before you in prayer that you change us from the inside out so that we can be the people you've called us to be. Father, whether we're starting from zero, if we're not spending any time in prayer, to someone who's dedicated in their rhythm of prayer, may we continue to seek you and be open. Not because we feel guilt about it, but because this truly does change us and forms us more into your image. Father, bless us as we seek you, seek what you're calling us to in the world. Help us wherever we're starting from to learn to sit in your presence, to bring our hearts before you and to ask what you're calling for us to do in the world. Be with us as we continue to seek you this week. In your son's name I pray, amen.